Hi, and welcome back to the Mob Mentality Show. My name is Chris Lucian, and my co-host is Austin Chadwick. And today we have Paul Guestwicky to join us uh, and talk about uh, Classroom Mob Programming RPG, which is an adaptation of uh, Willem Larson's game, uh, as well as Agile Ideas um, in kind of multidisciplinary undergraduate courses. Uh, so it was a really exciting talk topic in the kind of education space. But uh, first, Paul, could you kind of give us a, a little bit about yourself and, and kind of introduce it and then we can get into the first topic? Sure. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, I'm Paul Gestwicki. I'm a professor of computer science at Ball State University. And uh, when I first started at the university, I thought my career was going to go in one direction and it took a complete curve toward game development. And, uh, and I just love it. I've got to work with all kinds of great students. I've worked with schools and museums and community partners doing serious games. And uh, yeah, I, I really love it. So my favorite classes to teach involve multidisciplinary teams working together to make games. Um, but I also teach a required 200 level course on uh, agile software development. And I just started putting in some mobbing ideas based on stuff I've learned from you guys. Uh, and so that led to this, this mob programming RPG project. And so we can we can go as deep into that as you want. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, okay, well, so let's, uh, let's start with the mob programming RPG um and yeah uh kind of how did you discover it and then and then what how did you come to make the adaptations you made and maybe with some sure. examples of those yeah you bet so um uh, about a year ago, maybe a little bit more than that, um I made a contact uh with a collaborator in industry and we were talking about uh how we use serious software engineering practices to improve what's happening in game development. Of course, he was looking at it as he wants to improve the practices of engineers. Uh, and I'm looking at it as trying to help students learn those practices so that they can become effective engineers. And he recommended to me the Mob Mentality podcast. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll check that out. Uh, and the first episode I listened to was with uh, Joe Justice. And he brought up Willem Larson's Mob Programming RPG. So here I am, like a scholar of agile methods and teaching and games. And I hear there's a mob programming RPG. Like I <laughs> immediately I went to the website, I Googled for it and I found it. And I said, this is absolutely brilliant. Um, so I, I've never met Larson, right? Like uh, I've seen him on your show. Uh, he seems like a really cool guy and huge kudos to him for recognizing this interplay between um, playfulness and powered by the apocalypse style games in particular and mobbing. Like absolutely brilliant. And icing on the cake, the creative commons license, right? Like that's, that's, Amazing. So if you're listening, <laughs> thanks, Willem. Like speaking as a as a scholar who's got to kind of scrape together everything I can, like yeah. it was everything I needed. So, I'll be sure to connect the two of you after this. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to get in touch with him. I, I, I haven't reached out personally, but I but I absolutely love his work. So um so I, I took the game as is, right? As William describes it, and I put it into this required sophomore level course, which is we call it advanced programming, but what it really is is kind of techniques of agile development. We get into how do you work on a team, how do you pair a program, how do you deal with ambiguity, how do you make user stories. Um, uh, yeah. So the, anyway, it's it's a fun course. I love teaching it. Um, I inserted the game right into the course, and it was a little rocky. Um, the students dug it. Every group I played it with, I said, that was okay. Do you want to try again? <laughs> and they said, yes. And so then we used another class period to play it again. And the second time was always a little better. Um, but so I started taking some notes. Again, I think about it like an academic, right? So I'm, I was taking notes about what was working for me and what wasn't working for me. And I started to think, you know, what if, because it's all Creative Commons licensed, what if I just spun it a little bit toward my particular constraints? Um, 
Now, it turns out November is National Game Design Month. It's it's not a well-known celebration like uh, National Novel Writing Month, but I celebrate it every November. Um, and so I thought, boy, this November, this you know, just this past November, I said, this is my inspiration. I want to take Larson's game and I want to see what what changes can I make to it to spin it for my classroom experience? So um, so I, I feel free to interrupt me at any time with questions too. Sorry, I'm kind of switching into professor mode, right? We can only talk for 50 or 75 minutes at a time. So <laughs> please, the platform okay. is yours. Take it. <laughs> so there, were, there were four major things that I picked out that that I wanted to modify out of that that core inspiration. One was because of the size of my classes, I needed to have multiple teams playing the game at once. Because previously, I tried having everybody together. And, you know, if a bunch of people skipped class that day, it worked all right. But otherwise, it was a bit too much time between turns. And I needed it to fit within 50 minutes. So within uh, like a normal Monday, Wednesday, Friday for me, class period, um, which is hard. I mean, 50 minutes is hard to get anything done, right? So to get anything significant done, it was hard. Um, the playbooks were a lot of fun. My students liked working with those. But their feedback to me was that they spent a lot of time in the playbooks instead of in the problem. So I wanted to remove some of that friction. Um, and I wanted the, um, <laughs> so let me explain one other piece because this yeah. is like, this is the best part for me. Watching my students play the game, I saw how they actually work. And now if you've ever taught people, right? Like you can teach people, you can say, do it this way, do it the way I'm telling you. And then they do something and then they send it back to you. And like, you kind of think maybe they did what I said. I don't know. But when I'm sitting in the room and watching them play the game, I'm seeing them actually programming, right? Like how they actually do it as if I wasn't there. And that was phenomenal, right? That, that almost yeah. never happens in a classroom. They're always very concerned about the professor being there, but because of the <laughs> game, they were just sort of doing their own thing. And I got to see, uh, honestly, how badly some of them program. Um, <laughs> but that was good, right? It's a required sophomore level class. And some yeah. people have been programming since they were 10. And some people mm. only started a year ago. And it's in a different language for some of them. Some of them are transfer students. And all that stuff rises to the top. And you see, ah, yeah. when I'm trying to teach test-driven development, some of you are still worried about where your semicolons go, right? Yeah. So, so I needed the game my variation on the game to push that idea forward, right? To to be able to scaffold their learning of the, the topics like test-driven development. Um, and so that was my inspiration. Those are all the things I tried to pull together. And uh, I made a, I made my variation on it. I call it the classroom, uh, sorry, classroom mob game because it's not so much a role-playing game as Larson's is. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's also Creative Commons. It's free for anybody yeah. to grab, uh, host it up on GitHub. Um, I've play tested it a couple of times. I haven't done it yet this semester, uh, but back in November, I played it in a couple other people's classes. And uh, yeah, so that's my that's my brain dump. And you yeah, know, we can talk yeah. about the the rules or the inspiration or um, yeah, any of those things. Right? I'm, yeah, I'm really, a lot to a fun pull project. on in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so uh, I guess, uh, how did you give feedback when you when you uh, saw how people were actually programming? Like, what was the so you had that revelation. Um, what 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 changed when you had that revelation? Because I thought that was a pretty interesting comment. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, all kinds of stuff. And I might <laughs> I might have to weave through that a little bit. So feel free <laughs> to pull me back in. Um, in my own classes, when I first started using that game, um, Larson's game, I, I was shocked and stunned. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like I didn't know what to make of it. Mm -hmm. And so I turned that into a conversation with my students about 
you're trying to get them to tell me where they felt comfortable, where they didn't feel comfortable. And actually, right about this time, I was also pivoting the class away from Java and towards Dart for unrelated <laughs> reasons we can talk about later if you want. Sure. Um, but that too helped me see, because I did it once in Java and once in Dart, I got to see how much of it was the language and how much of it was the curriculum and how much of it was the game, right? Because I had, I had a couple of different levers to pull on. Um, and it, it seemed to me like it wasn't the environment. It wasn't, you know, IntelliJ versus Android Studio. It wasn't Java versus Dart. It was really the concept of test-driven development, right? Mm -hmm. Like this, they could get in there and slap some code and hope it worked, which is a very like freshman level way. And what the sophomore level course is really about is like, let's elevate that. Let's talk about craftsmanship. We use um, clean code as a textbook, actually. So we talk about like, what is, what does it mean to make good code? Like what, what do we, how do we know it when we see it? Um, so TDD is a big part of it. And they, they struggle with it more than I thought they did. So one of the stories here to answer your question is when I was testing this in a, a colleague's class, she was teaching another section of the same class and very mm -hmm. kindly, she let me come in and just test my game with her students. Um, she, I was just watching them struggle right because yeah. they weren't really my students and i could just kind of observe but she felt a great need to go in and intervene and say like well you need to put a, a you know closed brace here or something right and like good for her for that right like i yeah. no criticism on her um but also then i got to see the difference between the naturalistic environment of sophomore computer science majors and the intervention environment. Like what happens when my collaborator comes in and just kindly says, you got to have a semicolon there. And, and that's all she was doing. Like she wasn't helping them with the hard stuff. And in fact, okay. out of five teams, only two, I think, got any passing tests in 50 minutes on FizzBuzz, right? Yeah. So like it was, it's it's hard for them. And this is why Larson's game was a little bit too much for them, that it, I can see why it would work great with people who are competent and are learning something new, but my students are, <laughs> they're not incompetent. They're just uneducated, right? They haven't, they don't have the experience yet. And so I wanted a game that pulled on that playfulness and, and rose for me, like, so I could see, oh, these particular people might need some more help, right? I need to, I need to send them an email or call them to office hours. Um, but also for me to try to be, and again, I think this gets at your original question, to help me as a reflective practitioner recognize when do I need to get in there more? Like, and not just say, hey, here's an assignment, go do it, but have them bring it to me, like bring it to class, show me a thing so that I can see like, yeah, I kind of figured you might be lost right here. So let's talk about, you know, how to load a data file or, you know, whatever it might be, right? If you've worked with brand new programmers, right? They make all the brand new programmer mistakes because of course they do, right? There's no, we all did, right? We all did at some point. <laughs> the, the, the longer away that, that is in memory though, it gets, it does get a little hazy. <laughs> Nice, nice, nice. Okay, that, that that's super helpful explanations. And <clears throat> uh, we'll put links in the show notes to Willem's previous game and previous episodes on that. So uh, um, for people to get a context of that. So uh, I'll try to give a 30 second version of that one. And then I'm going to ask how, what modifications you made exactly, because I started you looking at uh, some aspects of your game. Um, and so in Willem's game, you know, you start the game, people have uh, roll sheets and like, I'm going to try to be a good driver, you know, listen for navigation and not put my own ideas in. Right. And then, you know, all through the various roles of mobber, navigator, researcher, et cetera. And then during the game, you're trying to uh, level up by completing certain tasks in certain roles to kind of show what are the different roles people can play in mob programming. 
And one thing I noticed that, that was uh, different with yours, I'm trying to find, oh yeah, right here, is it's, uh, did, did you change the roles? Because it almost seems like there's like levels... Yeah, but maybe maybe right. just generally, what what were some of the changes you made, uh, and why? Good. Yeah, yeah, and and again, kudos to to Larson. Like this idea that a mob has different kinds of people, that's great. And and a brief aside, um, when I do my uh, multidisciplinary undergraduate game development classes, they there's a real sense in which they taught me about mobbing, just by like emergence right? right and then i started mentoring teams to say last year's team they just got five people around the screen and worked on it right and now that i've studied it more again th thanks in part to you guys mm. now that i've studied it more i see that there are more hooks for like formal processes like things like strong form of the driver navigator pattern right which is yeah. is brilliant and i'm not i wouldn't have thought of that myself right but it's when you when you look at what people are really doing it it's it's extremely helpful right um so Larson's game is great for this diversity. That's the kind of thing that my my A students, like playing the game twice, they were seeing like, oh, there's different ways to do this. But my B, C, and D students were like, ah, what? <laughs> and so I thought, look, I need the game to, to push them through the fundamentals rather than showcase to them the variety and the diversity of what happens at the end. So what I what I literally did was I made a list of all the different actions in Larson's game. And then I, I recompiled them into a scaffolded system where instead of getting a new book, you level up and unlock a new ability. So I've got um, for those for people that are, aren't just listening, but people that are watching. I'll hold up a, one of the the pages, right? So it's got these four quadrants on it, and the it's designed that you'd print out one of these for each of your students. And because I spent a lot of time doing origami as a kid, um, <laughs> it's meant to be folded into quarters. So you start as a level zero mobber. There's the camera. There you are. You start as a level level zero mobber, and there's only three things you can do: contribute an idea, ask questions until you understand, or point out that someone else has earned an experience point. And so you only have to worry about those. You do your mob roll. And again, just like in Larson's, there's also a driver and a navigator that have slightly different ones, but they're, there's few. And when you mark off the XP boxes, you go to level one. So you become a level one mobber. And now on the level one section, again, I don't know if the camera will pick this up or not, you have one marked as new, which is support an idea from a lower level mobber. So again, in my classroom, I've got people with all different experiences and some people are having good days and bad days. So I try. I wanted to cap this, this idea that everybody should be involved. And I realized if somebody has fewer XP, they're probably struggling a little bit. So let's make it so that a mobber gets a point just for helping somebody who's struggling a little bit, right? Pull them along. Um, and then again, as you level up again, the you get new roles, you level up again, you get new roles. And in my playtesting, some groups got up to level four. I uh, sorry, it's levels zero, one, two, three, right? Because we're computer science professors. Yes. <laughs> zero based um, index, love it. Of course, it's zero based, right? What else would it be? Um, it made perfect sense to me at the time. Um, also, I've been playing some dungeon crawl classics, and I like the idea of level zero funnels. But you know, that's a whole different yeah. games discussion. Um, so rather than having a a diversity of um, roles that you get, it's meant to scaffold you upward in a to understand better just those fundamentals. Uh, and I've been using FizzBuzz as an example, and, and that works well. Um, one of them in particular I'll point out is on Navigator. I'm, this is a sequence I'm real happy with. And, and my, my uh, colleagues, Dave and Jen, who helped me with playtesting, they gave me some feedback on these two, which is really helpful. Um, 
my students, they're just learning test-driven development, right? So just this idea of red-green refactor is new to them. So I made it really explicit on the navigator roles. In level zero navigator, one of the things you can do for XP is describe a desirable failing unit test, the red in red-green refactor. And then the level one version of that is hold the team to the appropriate step of red, green, or refactor. So it's a little more pedantic, but I think it does it without being um, hmm, too ham-fisted, right? <laughs> I hope it does it in the spirit of playfulness, right? I, I don't, I'm yeah. hoping my students don't see this and think this is Dr. G telling me what to do. I hope they look at it and what my playtesting seems to show is they look at it and say, oh, this is a game and this is my yeah. character class and I'm going to level up by doing XP. And yes, I had one group of like power gamers who within the first 10 minutes, they were all level four because they figured out a way to game the system. Yeah. But like, it's okay. That's the right? fun of it, right? They yeah, have to understand they, it well enough to do that. Exactly. And it was a group of kind of high achieving students who had a lot of background experience and they were having fun with it and they learned something. I said, well, gosh, that's a good day. That's a good 50 minute session for <laughs> you mm -hmm. know a bunch of sophomore computer scientists. Nice, nice. Yeah, the, yeah. Okay. I see. One thing sorry, one thing I, I missed from Williams, by the way, is he's got those icons, right? The pretty yeah. icons that you the badges that you put up. Yeah. And I ran out of room and I ran out of <laughs> I ran out of November, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so if I if I continue to work on this or if somebody wants to submit a pull request that just like puts a little uh stamp yeah. on here with some icons or you know images, I well, love that. And I, I'd, I'd plug it. So uh, I think it's game-icons.net. Those are oh, yeah. all, yeah, those are all open uh, Creative Commons as well. Mm -hmm. um, so those icons came from from there and there's a, a, a great variety if anybody's doing that. Also, your story reminds me uh, a little bit of this book, which I'm going through right now, uh, The Art of oh, Game yeah. Design, A Book of Lenses, um, mm -hmm. because you're kind of applying some of those lenses for your own audience. So it's a good uh you know if anybody's doing game refinement uh it's a great mm -hmm. book for that yeah. yeah you bet you bet and um <laughs> jesse shell is a, is a very cool guy I've, I've met him at a couple of conferences and heard him speak and so yeah. yeah i think folks who are really interested in this kind of playful side of things yeah yeah he's, he's a good guy to follow yeah nice. nice you know so what i noticed about when you described your process there is something it's a process that i've been through a few different times uh but it didn't come out as a, a as a game but basically, the idea is that when you're with the team or a mob or an ensemble and uh, you notice too much chaos, probably, right? Like you you try something and you run an experiment and there's too much, like the environment's too loose and people are lost, right? And so what it looks like you did is you noticed that for your context, right? Which is these students at a particular level. And then you increased uh, the amount of direction and structure in the environment, right? And so... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that's something I've done before too. And I tend to do it kind of in similar spaces as yours, people trying mobbing for the first time, right? Or a team that's just coming together for the first time. There's so many things to learn and what's going on, it might become overwhelming. And so what I'll often do is pre-decide a lot of things and make it really simple scaffolding for the next step, yeah. right? And that's exactly what you did with the game because I've observed the same thing as well before is that if someone's learning mobbing, they're learning to code, they're learning this, they're learning that, they're learning how to interact with the people around them. And then they, you throw them into the RPG game. Um, then they might be trying to learn 15 things at once, right? Right, right. <laughs> and so, yeah, and you get you get overload and you get fatigue or you get anxiety. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, recently, um, I was explaining to a group that, you know, sometimes when people are brand new to mobbing, especially when you have like new people joining a team, 
uh, and this is like even in the work environment, uh, you know, maybe they went through school never having had to say their code out loud before. Um, and so that's like a big caveat that I put on the navigating the navigator role and and even in the work environment is, you know, maybe somebody just needs to be feeding them the next thing that they're going to navigate because saying the code out loud is often really a, a big leap for people. Uh, mm. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's something I'd I'd love to hear more from you, or even if it just references to other things, is yeah. that navigator role. Like, yes. man, that's hard, right? Like, <laughs> my job is standing in front of rooms of people and talking to them about stuff. So you know, I, you get kind of used to it, but um, it's really hard for for students to do, and I'm sure yeah. I'm sure it's hard for especially new team members, right? Because um, they don't have a rapport, you don't feel trusted necessarily, and with my students there, you know, not only are they uncomfortable with public speaking and you know they're still trying to figure out who they themselves are in many ways um they don't have the wisdom to know what would even make sense to do here so i I have a great comment around that too um one thing that i so when we were first when i was first mobbing uh you know there there wasn't kind of any of this material around there and so um there's kind of like this kind of leap of intuition um but when I was first mobbing, uh, I think I was navigating um, way too much, right? Like, you know, so so there would be periods of time where I'd go, you know, eight hours talking the whole day, sort of thing, and just saying like this is the idea and kind of verbalizing things. Um, and you know, I'd get home and my and, and my wife would want to talk to me, but I wouldn't want to talk anymore because it was like that thing. <laughs> I, it was you know my my voice was hoarse and stuff. And at that point, I realized that um, really the, kind of a one key metric that any mob uh, probably should keep with, with each other is um, everybody should speak a roughly equal amount of time. You're sharing the load and distributing that load. Um, and so that means that if somebody's brand new to the team and not talking at all because they're, uh, you know, they're just new to it and haven't done, you know, verbalization before that needs to be encouraged and space needs to be set aside for that. And on the opposite end of that, if somebody is very, very technical or like a high contributor and just really wants speed, they need to make sure that they're, they're coaching that navigation, uh, to other people, you know, and, or, um, forcing themselves to slow down on that so that that level can be balanced. And so when navigation's very one-sided, it's, it, uh, it both robs people of opportunities as well as um, uh, exhausts people that uh, maybe have too much context or are holding all of the information. And so finding ways to distribute that uh, through diagramming or other things is really important. So um, you know, if, if there's like a team goal, you know, so, so maybe you have individual goals, uh, and levels, but maybe something that goes through a, a team level is like, is saying, how well are we keeping to everybody contributing, uh, their voice, a roughly equal amount of time. Um, and in the work environment that might be spread out over multiple days, like maybe one person talks a lot of the day and then another person talks a lot of the day, but over that whole week, it's about equal, uh, or it can be, you know, every few minutes with, with strong style navigation. Right. Um, and, and the rotation, but yeah, uh, that's very that, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'll oh, go ahead. Uh, I have something to throw in there too, but go ahead first, Paul. <laughs> oh, I, I just, uh, that's really, that's a very helpful heuristic. Again, my, my experience with mobbing is, is all either ad hoc or yeah. just things that I've seen kind of on, on the outside, not as a 
member of the mob. So this kind of advice is, is really valuable. I'll, I'll tell you just a, a quick story. I have a, a really great team. It's, it's slightly too big a team. I have 14 yeah. students on a team making a game this semester with a local museum. And, and it's a really good team. And it's the kind of team I can push and feel like, yeah, they can take it, right? They can take being pushed a little bit. And the greatest thing happened just yesterday at the time of this recording, where they they've I've introduced them this idea. Maybe you should try mobbing. Maybe you should try mobbing. And so a bunch of them mobbed up and we're using mob time. Right. And everybody starts putting in their names. And one of my artists said, I want to mob too. So they put the artist in. So the artist at one point, his name comes up as driver and he comes up and he's sitting at the Godot engine and yeah. he has no programming experience ever. None. Right. Like, and so the navigator saying like, well, you got to hit tab right? <laughs> and then type in these characters and then a left, no, no, left parenthesis. No, no, that's a bracket, right? But it was wonderful, right? Because this guy suddenly is, he's learning so much. Mm -hmm. And the other team members, some of them have programmed before in Godot and some of them have not. They're like having to review like, yeah, what, what is that? And how do we even speak it, right? Yeah. So, so what I'm going to do tomorrow, I'll see my students tomorrow. I'm going to say, let's try talking equal amounts. Let's try yeah. that with, with whoever's on the mob. And that's, that's great. Anyway, so thank you. That's, I can yeah, take, absolutely. I'll use that tomorrow. So. <laughs> awesome. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. That I love stories like that. One of the uh, first mobbing meetups I went to, uh, uh, I was in a mob playing the RPG game. Actually, funny enough, yeah. I was playing the mob RPG and it was with somebody who's never written a line of code in their life. And, mm. uh, and so, I, yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about and, you know, kind of similar to what you did there. I think so the most experience I have is being in a mob with someone like that, as opposed to being like a back of the room coach or leader of some kind. Um, so that's different, but at least from being within the same mob, the thing I like to do as soon as I suspect there's someone in, the, in those shoes is that they probably might feel really nervous that they don't know anything. Right. And so it's just to lower the ball, the lower the bar for what's needed for navigation. So it's either like, Oh, okay, cool. And when we start mobbing, if it's your turn to navigate, um, you know, if you're not sure what to do, that's great. Just ask a question and we can turn it to Q&A time and you can uh, do some learning. It's kind of like the my turn for learning pattern. Uh, and what we can link an episode uh, episode link to that one. Or it can, um, yeah, and then also to demonstrate it, right? So the first time I navigate, I might be like, hey, I don't know what that library is right there. You know, just like demonstrate not knowing something and not knowing what to do and saying, hey, does anybody else know, else know? you know, so... Mm -hmm. What might be super intimidating for someone to first navigate is that they see the first three navigators and they're just like rocking it. You know what I mean? They're mm -hmm. just like, oh, go to line 10, add this, go line 10, this. And they're just, you know, so to have to not fake it, but to just really point out something you don't know about what's going on and demonstrate that it's OK not to know. <laughs> and that's what mm -hmm. we're here for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could probably pull that right into maybe the navigator role. Again, I try not to have too many dots on each page because I don't want them to, to focus on there. But yes, that's a very cool idea because I because I saw that in, in my testing, I saw that exact anti-pattern where randomly on mob time, I had a kind of a superstar student with 10 years of experience being the first navigator. And then, yeah, yeah the next guy was, you know, <laughs> in, intimidated, I think it's fair to say. And again, <laughs> they did their best, right? But But it was... It was it was very clear that they felt a little out of out of sorts. Mm -hmm. And if I can yeah. give them a tool, like <laughs> here's here's a word you can say, here's a phrase you can use, it'd be fantastic. Yep. And, and it's tough because you know uh, we fell into this trap yesterday. We had a visitor yesterday who come joined our team and worked on some production code, and I think we got excited. So we were we were all working on something we didn't understand, and then some new information came into the team where the three of us knew exactly what to do. 
and the visitor had no idea what was going on. Mm. And we were just kind of rocking it for like 30 minutes. Like, oh, go to this line, add this test. Okay, go over here. Because we were just excited to get the information we needed to implement the feature. Uh, and and then he was kind of like, whoa, I think I'm going to leave. you know. And he was like showing mm. signs that he was super uncomfortable. And it was like, oh, okay, okay. And we just totally forgot about like making it accessible <laughs> to him, like what we were doing. And he he opened up and he's like, I literally understood 5% of the last 30 minutes. I have no idea what's going on right now, you know? And so mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's easy to fall into if you get excited, you know? And so, yeah. especially if people are in a class and learning for the first time and, you know, if they're picking it up then then they'll get excited and just start moving. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how you do use that to adapt to the game, but it's just, a, just a thought there. <laughs> yeah. And as a, as a scholar too, you know, I, I wonder about the qualitative differences between the workplace and the classroom because the, you know, my, my students are paying me to be there, right? Although they don't often think about it that way, but, but they are right. We're not, we're not paying them. Um, and there is a, there's grades, right. And they want to compete for grades. So even though I try to use some, um, innovative contemporary grading practices to mitigate that they're from this culture of grades being the important thing. And I got to fight to get my A and, and, so that's like, you can't just take that away. I think it'd be a great study to try to compare what happens in that, you know, because they're in a school environment versus somebody who feels equally awkward in a work environment or what are the qualitative differences? So and I, I have more ideas for research than I can pursue, but maybe one of your listeners will uh, <laughs> you know, trigger some inspiration. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And I, I think uh, in mobs that I've done in academic environments, um, yeah, things have been... You know, there there have been maybe different uh, different behaviors that kind of emerge uh, because of that dynamic, for sure. Um, but also, I think uh, you know a lot of mobbing uh, is, is just generally inviting and fun, and so uh, there is like kind of this third pillar, uh, the common pillar, I guess, between the two that um, uh, uh, that yeah, mobbing just has some some sort of natural like uh euphoria to it in some way when when you get on a roll with people so that's really cool yeah it's got to be related too to like this magic circle idea in games right that yeah. you're you're involved in this little thing and you're you're being playful and you're working together and i and i think again for any of your listeners who are teachers setting up something like this so that you can actually be there and see them working as if you weren't there, right? I, I don't know that I've experienced that before. Um, it was a, a really weird, almost like an out-of-body experience. It was like like I was peering in on them at a study session or something because yeah. I don't think they knew I was there anymore. Yeah. Um, and it was it was great for me, right? Because I'm on the curriculum committee <laughs> yeah. and I can go back to my colleagues and say, hey, I think we need to shore up this particular thing because I, I observed that what I thought my students knew, you know, they really didn't know or this thing that, you know, we weren't sure about. We know they do know. So, um, you know, it was really great uh, assessment feedback loop, you know? Yeah. And then, well, uh, that's a good segue to our next topic, which was the uh, kind of agile ideas and what it means to teach them within a multidisciplinary undergraduate game development course, including planning, iterative development, and clean code. So yeah, we can jump, you know, uh, you want to kind of describe more about that? I know we've heard about it a lot already, but um, sure. maybe we can dive in a little bit more. Yeah, maybe I can give you kind of a sketch of how I got to where I am. And then, yeah. and then if you want to talk more about any of those things, we can. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2012, I had the, the best experience that I, of my career as a professor. Um, we have a center here at Ball State University called the Virginia Ball Center for Creative Inquiry. And it's an opportunity where students 
15 students come together. We meet at a mansion off campus and it's all the students do all semester is take this seminar. And for the faculty member, it's the only thing we do the whole semester. And it's uh, it's part of this uh, immersive learning, we call this brand. Um, and it involves community partnerships. So I, uh, I, I applied for a fellowship. I got the fellowship and in 2012, I had a team of students and we worked with uh, the Indianapolis Children's Museum, which uh, anybody in the region would know is like one of the best things in Indiana. It's amazing. So it was a great partner for us to have. Um, this was my first time, and I told the students, we're going to treat this like a job. Like we're going to do nine to five. And if you're late, you got to bring donuts next time. Um, and we're going to use Scrum and we're going to use TDD wherever we can. Um, and we did. We built a game about uh, about museum. Again, the details of the game don't matter quite so much. And unfortunately, uh, it is lost to the uh, lack of backwards compatibility that many games are, are stuck with. Um, but it was a great experience. And as part of this, we formed kind of squads that did some development together, professional development stuff, because I was trying to get them to think about this as a, as a job. So that's the first time I read Clean Code. So five or so computer science majors and me, we read Clean Code. We read like a chapter a week or something, and we talked about it. And we read it and say like, I think he's right. You know, <laughs> let's try it. Let's try doing this. Um, and we did, and it was great for us. So shortly thereafter, I was working on a side project, another game project. And I said, you know, just for kicks, I'm going to try test-driven development, right? It's not anything I'd ever learned before, but I tried it and it totally saved my butt because this was a, the, the premise of the game was that it was a like a Scrabble game, but with equations. And at one point I wanted to add parentheses, right? And suddenly everything broke, right? Because my assumptions I made about um, order of operations were now wrong. And I know they broke because of my tests and I was able to very quickly make everything work again. And I met my deadline. And happy ending the story, I actually won a game design competition out of this and made a few bucks, right? So, hey, that, that was pretty cool, right? Um, so these two experiences formed me as somebody who uh, I understood this thing that I wanted, right? Like, because I'd lived it. Um, and I, I know a lot of my faculty colleagues um, don't have that opportunity, right? But I was on this team with these 12 students at the Virginia Ball Center. And we built this game and like we were, you know, we're hip deep in it, right? It was joys and sorrows of the craft, right? As, as, as they say. So anyway, I started pulling some of that more into the curriculum after that experience. And that's where this, this course that I regularly teach came from in large part was my, my conversion to agile methods. Um, so this fit very well with the stuff I was doing with these other multidisciplinary undergraduate teams. Hey, look, we got 15 weeks, <laughs> we got three credit hours, we got people who've never met each other before, and we have a community partner who wants a game about um, water conservation in the White River here in Muncie. Um, so what are we going to do? Well, one option is we could like fight and scrap and like, no, no, how about this? Let's work incrementally and iteratively. Let's set up all our goals. Let's change those goals every two weeks because we're going to get smarter, right? Let's refactor aggressively. Let's be ready to throw anything away that doesn't work. Um, some teams are better than others, right? Some day, sometimes I'm better than others, of course, right? But but these ideas have been transformative to me and my work. And I see my students, it's transformative and it brings them joy, right? The ones who come in because they want to make stuff, they say, oh my gosh, I can make stuff, right? This is great. And, and honestly, you know, without tooting my horn too much. I've had a lot of students go out and get jobs because they've been on multidisciplinary teams and they've read clean code and they've done mobbing and and folks, you know, they in an interview, they don't just say, I showed up to class and got a B plus, right? They can say, hey, I worked with a musician and we had a disagreement about how to integrate the audio and we came up with a solution based on continuous integration. Boom, right? <laughs> like do more of that. <laughs> so I love my job, right? Like 
<laughs> it's, it's the best job in the world. I get to work with students who want to work hard and work with partners and make cool things, right? And and teach them some of these great pieces that I, I picked up along the way from, again, guys like you are taking the time to share this with the community and authors like Robert Martin and um, folks like William Larson who are, who are putting stuff out there for people to use. Like, I, it's, it's great that we can all, I can help my students see too. Like, it's not just me and you. It's, it's a bigger us and we want to lift the whole industry and make good things for people. So. That's fantastic. Well, what what a cool story. And it, it sounds very similar to mine in many ways where I've been working in more traditional ways of software development. And then I tried them and discovered them uh, like in a, in a class or, or in something and my eyes lit up and it's, it's just, uh, yeah, like uh, your your story where, you know, you made a simple change and everything broke. We actually had that experience yesterday. You know, no one in the mob <laughs> needed to be convinced of TDD, but it was like we were told of the change to make. And to be honest, I, if you would have asked me before we made the change, do we really need TDD for this change? And I'm like, nah, you know, I would have been like, it's simple enough. I think we can make it without breaking something. But we did it TDD way anyways. And what we realized is we did break like 10 things <laughs> because there was uh, side effects that we didn't anticipate. And so um, and that's also a smell that, you know, something to look into. Uh, so, the, you know, it, it really is a cool story. And uh, I want to just take a moment and for the whole community to applaud what you're doing, uh, Paul. <laughs> for, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, because this is something we talk about a lot where um, a lot of people who are into the extreme programming movement and want to have development shops that work that way with, uh, you know, craftsmanship and clean code. Um, usually they have to have an onboarding process um, where you kind of have to retrain, you know, like, oh, you kind of learned to ride your bike this way. Well, now we're going to ride it a completely different way, you know, and we're give them an opportunity to learn uh, to do things backwards. It's almost like they've been batting right-handed their whole life for baseball. Now they're going to be like, okay, now you're left-handed, you know? And so it's, uh, and so, giving uh, students these experiences early on is a huge win for the industry. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's good for everybody. And, mm. and I see, I see it, you know, academic computer science, there's good things and there's bad things. And, and sometimes it can be a little slow to respond. Uh, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. Right. But, but the truth is that the last several years, I've seen more and more talk at places like computer science education conferences about these ideas. And um, I think it's, it's started, you know, many, many years ago with a couple of people just having conversations and, and yeah. it gets more and more mainstream. And so I, I think it's a good thing. I think, I think this is, um, I think academia has learned a lot from industry here about how to help our students and even ourselves be more productive. And at the end of the day, like we want to make cool stuff. I mean, that's what brought me to computer science. I want to make cool stuff and share it with people. So if I can do that faster and better, like why would I say no? Yeah. I think back to my software engineering course from my bachelor's degree and it was uh, <clears throat> agile was two paragraphs in the back of the book. And, and we literally spent, I think, you know, not even a day, not, not even a full class period talking about it. So uh, it, it's a it's a big difference over these uh, last few years, for sure. And yeah. you know, we do hear more about it um, as well. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it's super interesting, you know, so that your, your 200 level courses practicing TDD, it's uh, it has clean code as the textbook, um, you know, for, for that sort of uh, stuff it has required agile uh related stuff so so those are some of the things that i heard um so uh i guess how you know how do the students take that information one thing that I, i've found is that um a lot of people that we hire uh that don't have any experience in the industry um 
don't understand the value they're getting out of agile uh, a lot because and if we hired somebody that had one year at another company that didn't practice agile their perspective is totally different like it's it's mm. kind of like a grass is greener on the other side mentality unless they've seen how bad the other side is um so is there anything that you do to to deal with that uh or or do you yeah. get do you get that feeling at all that's a great question yeah cuz there's a sense in which agile is a reaction and a reaction to what? And we don't have time to teach all those things. Yeah. <laughs> so oftentimes I'll spend like five minutes going on the board. Like this is what they called waterfall. It has never worked in the history of industry. I'm going to teach you something else. But if people yeah. say waterfall, this is what they're talking about. So maybe it's the inversion of your software engineering course experience. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Um, so I'll mention just quickly, all of my course plans from the last 15 years or so are all public online under yeah. a Creative Commons license. So yeah. anybody that wants to take pieces of my courses and, and do stuff with them, I mean, golly, go for it. Mm -hmm. The way that I've evolved this particular course that I teach is we do three weeks of like pretty intense reading and practice. And almost every assignment has the same kind of form. Read this chapter of Clean Code or some other reading that I've picked out. Look at some code you wrote last year and tell me what's wrong. <laughs> Where right. did you violate these principles? Oh, I, because I, I draw on this. Um, you know, I've done some work in human computer interaction where there's this idea of affordances, right? And one of the ideas that, that led to the theory of affordances was this observation that you have to see an opportunity to act before you can meaningfully act in the world. So before we worry about how do I refactor, say, well, let's look at what are the problems in this code? Like, can we say which principles are being violated? Um, even just that part there, some of my students really struggle with, right? Because especially the cowboy coders, right? <laughs> because they figure, no, my code is fine. Um, but oftentimes if they have a little bit of intellectual humility, they'll say, oh, that, that variable name, like I too, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah, yeah you're right, it doesn't. So let's, <laughs> let's do something better. So after those first three weeks, we do two week, a two week project that's kind of designed to say, take all those things and integrate them into this little, it's actually a little project, but for them it's brutal, right? Because they have no idea how to integrate those things they did. I mean, some of them do because they, they understand everything I'm saying, but if they get a little bit behind, it's hard for them. But the reason we do that two-week project is to get them ready for the final project, which is the rest of the semester. So we do a nine-week project in three three-week increments. And again, these are just sophomores, right? So their projects are not world-changing, right? They're, they're simple little things, but we build them incrementally and iteratively. And at the end of the semester, I always give them a charge and I point out, there's a very good chance your next faculty are not going to make you do this. And they're not going to make you say, which viol which clean code rules did you violate? They might not even look at your source code. They might only look at the output. And that's their prerogative. Like, I can't tell them what to do. They're teaching networking or whatever. Like, they got stuff to do. The onus is on you once you learn these things to be the craftsperson, right? To actually take pride in your work and think of it like a professional. And I think... Even the students who are skeptical understand what I'm saying. <laughs> and they're, and when I get them in like junior, senior year, sometimes they'll confide in me stories about like, yeah, I, I tried that. Or, you know, the, the professor didn't require it. So we just, you know, we didn't know. We haven't written a unit test since your class. And then I, I smack them on the wrist, right? <laughs> and so let's, but, but let's talk about this because you're going to, you want to go out and get a job, right? You want to write good software. You want to write big software. You want to work on a team or you want to make video games, like whatever it is, right? Yeah. These, 
these practices are about making you do it better and faster and more predictably so that you can build the thing you want to build. So that's a lot of words and stories, which is kind of my MO, to say I don't have a great answer to that, right? It's highly variable. Some students, they like, oh my gosh, yes. And I had one of my best success stories was a guy who took my game programming class who didn't care at all about game programming, but he took this other course and he said, I like what he's teaching. <laughs> <laughs> right. He just That's wanted awesome. to do the stuff yeah. we did in that class. Um, so that was good. And so I, I feel good that I can infuse this, especially into these team-based courses and into community engaged courses. And mm -hmm. those students who they're not just doing it in the required class, but they're like really doing it across disciplines and with people with different experiences and with community partners. And then we put a thing out there and we show it, at, sometimes show it at conferences and stuff or submit it to competitions, which again, like it's, it's real, right? It's a real yeah. thing. Boy, the stories they have, you know, if you interview, you can hire my students, by the way, yeah. <laughs> interview these students, like they can tell you like really crucial to us was clear communication and using GitHub and having a scrum board or, you know, having unit tests using continuous integration. And they'll tell you like, without those, the project would have failed. And I say, yeah. yes, because we only had 15 weeks. Like, of course we had to use the best practices. We couldn't have done anything else. So, so it's a struggle and, and yeah. it's, there's still, you know, cultural conflicts within the discipline. Some people want to do all theory. Some people want to do all other things. You know, people like me just want to make video games. And <laughs> <laughs> right. It. So, so like, but we all work together. We're all, we're yeah. all rolling the ship forward. And like I said, the fact that there's a much wider community than I thought of when I was 19 years old, you know, it's much easier to reach out to, to podcasts and stack overflow even, you know, like yeah. to see, oh yeah, it's not just me. It's not just me and my partner. It's, it's all of us like everywhere. Yeah. Often, uh, so so I have I have this analogy uh, that I came up with, which is the the software project is the ship of Theseus, and the developers are planks of wood. And so, chances are that uh, that the project the the product that they go to work on uh, lasted long before their career started, and will last long after their career is over. And they're they're going to be part of a partial, you know, a partial part of the existence in that product's lifetime. And so how do you make it, you know, what would what code would you like to receive coming into it? And what code would you like to leave for the people coming after? And yeah. uh, sometimes that that helps a little bit. Um, and but, I've yeah. had I've been in some conversations with folks who have, have experimented with course designs like that. Yeah. One of my colleagues here at, at Ball State is he's thinking about doing like a course on on not exactly maintenance, but yeah, like inheriting the previous team's code base and continuing yeah. it and then handing it off to the yeah. next. It's it's tricky with this five courses a semester, 15 weeks, you know, only a couple of touch points a week. Uh, again, I want to make excuses, but we're, the systems don't support that so clearly, but, but yeah, there's something to that. And, yeah. and I think not just in software, right. But like the whole of the intellectual tradition of academia, right. Like we don't have to repeat Plato's conversations. We can actually read them. Right. Like, I think, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a bigger idea of understanding history and culture and programming as an art form and as a craft like these, they all come together to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Learning, learning from history is great. And uh, yeah, I love that as part of the tradition and uh, it is coming close to time. So uh, I'm going to start closing it down, but one thing I will uh, riff off of, of what you've, said is maybe we can come together and design uh, a course where the first couple of weeks we're going to build them a ship of theseus of code that is so terrible that they'll spend the first weeks in pain just like floating around on the broken parts of the ship <laughs> and then we'll be like oh how did we get here you know and then uh you know so i don't know just uh, 
I don't like the I don't like the, <laughs> I don't like the metaphor, but this idea of like giving giving them enough rope to hang themselves with is a little bit how the <laughs> nine week project goes. Like, because in that first three weeks they do something, and usually it's just it's a mess because they're still learning the pieces. And then you look back, have them look back at it, and say, "Oh yeah, maybe we should have not you know put everything in one file or used these terrible <laughs> names or you know whatever yeah. whatever it is. Every team's different." Right on, right on. All right. Well, in light of time, let's close it down. Um, before we close, Paul, it's been a really great time. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share a plug before we close? Yeah, thank you guys so much. You know, I, I blog over at paulgistwicky.blogspot.com. I write about teaching, about miniature painting, about game design, and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff there. So if anyone wants to read that, they can. And I mentioned all my course plans are available off of my professional website. I also have a little YouTube channel where I post some uh, pro programming tutorials. It's really anything I make for my students that is of public interest and doesn't include any of their code, I'll put on YouTube. Uh, and that's youtube.com slash paulgistwicky. So uh, everybody's welcome to check that stuff out. Fantastic. Fantastic. Wonderful. So uh, to our audience, well, first of all, thank you so much for being on the show. This is such a good time. Um, I feel very inspired by what you're doing. And uh, yeah, so uh, we want to turn up the good and pay it forward. And uh, so, yeah, I love it. Uh, to our audience, thank you so much for listening to this. If you are aware of anybody, uh, you know, in a classroom type environment or even in the professional world, you know, designing uh, ways for uh, their team to learn, you know, please share this episode with them. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, please like, subscribe. We'd love to hear your comments and stories of uh, your experiences with the Mob RPG game or uh, Agile and mobbing and uh, TDD in the classroom. Uh, we'd love to hear it. And uh, until next time, uh, have a good one, everyone. Have a good one, everyone, and mob on and talk to you later. Bye. Bye, everybody.